0: G'day everyone, I'm Luke Tipple and welcome to the Shark Week podcast. This is where you get exclusive access to the stars of Shark Week and learn from the top scientific minds on the planet. I'm talking to Chris Fallows and Jeff Kerr, stars of the Shark Week show, Jaws Awakens. So Jeff, Chris, welcome to the Daily Bite, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. me. So uh, Chris, let's start with you, a shark named Fred. And you've had an encounter with him before, tell us about that.
1: Well, quite a few years back, we were lucky enough to be down in New Zealand filming for another Discovery Channel show, and uh, I had this incredible male shark, around about 18, 19 foot long, come on in. I was down on the bottom, had several sharks around me, and then this truly ginormous animal just came barreling in towards me. And, you know, as a wildlife photographer, you're used to being in these situations, but generally, you know, animals will keep their distance and Fred was completely different to the other sharks, he just came straight in at me, knocked me over once or twice and was just an amazingly dominant animal and um, you know it, it was certainly a situation I wasn't very familiar with but quickly realized you know this was a shark unlike any other that you know we'd encountered to that point and it was incredible. I mean I, I love for situations like that and I truly love it and it was one of those experiences that'll you know live with me for, for the rest of my life.
0: Yeah, the footage is um is actually really cool. I mean, I know some people are gonna look at that and think it's super, super scary, and for a lot of people it would be. I'm looking at it just super geeking out, going, That is the coolest experience you could ever really be having right there. Um and you said he knocked you over. So I mean that cage looked a uh, you know, a little bit wobbly, is one little one man cage. Was he knocking you over and you're writing it back up and then he's knocking you over again? Is it like a yeah, dominance exactly. thing or is he curious? What's going on?
1: So you remember when you were a kid and you, your parents bought you those punch bags that you punch and they come back up again? Well, th- that's exactly what it was like. You know, the first few times it was a little bit unnerving, but um, we had designed we had designed the the craft that I was in that was called the Wasp. That if I did get knocked over, I could put my legs out and, and right myself. And after you had knocked me over a couple of times, it actually became I don't want to say it was fun, but um, yeah, I was actually enjoying myself. I mean, I was thinking to myself, whoever gets to do this sort of thing, you know, what an experience to have Fred and a whole lot of other great whites being incredibly curious. They weren't being aggressive. You know, what mm. people misremember is, unlike us, they don't have hands. So they kind of push things around. That's how they, they find out what they are. And um, yeah, getting to have a few great whites trying to get to know you. Well, yeah, let's just say it was a unique experience that I'll, I'll never forget and Strangely enough, I really hope I have again.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, something I think that people find really surprising is that individual sharks do have personalities, you know, that it's a little bit alien from what we think of a personality, but they do have personalities. So if you were to characterize Fred in that first encounter, what would you say he was doing?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, you're so right. I mean, one of the highlights of working with great whites for the last 30 years is getting to know individual personalities. And if I had to describe Fred, I would say he's a bull in a china shop. You know, there were there, there were no politeness or 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 just introducing himself. He just came barreling straight in. Let me know exactly who he was, and um, you know, just a real dominant animal that assert, asserted himself from the moment he arrived on the scene. And um, you know, you get sharks that are, are shy and retiring, others that are, are you know. Downright nervous, but this was just a, a really confident animal. Definitely the, the main guy on the block, and you know, from from just his dominance point of view, probably probably the main shark that was in the area at the time. So, yeah, a, a bull in a China shop is hard to describe, Fred.
0: Sounds like a fun character. So, uh, Jeff, you're no stranger to going down to New Zealand and, and making these Shark Week shows. Um, what brought up the the rediscovery or the you know the search for fred again
2: well if i may i want to go back and comment a little bit about chris's encounter with fred because he's very nonchalant about it but i have to say that it's probably one of the top two or three most i guess scariest moments that i've had as a producer of shark week for 30 years uh what he doesn't tell you is that we lost communications with um with chris for a few minutes and we had no idea where he was we were trying to follow his bubbles uh i got a report from andy casagrande who was on the bottom filming him that he had lost chris we don't know where chris is last time we saw him this giant uh, great white with a pilot fish uh, above him had knocked him over and was carrying him off somewhere so it, it was a very very tense situation i was on deck i was trying to call chris on the radio uh All I could hear was a garbled sound. We had no idea what was going on. So, uh, you know, I started making funeral arrangements, uh, actually. Oh, no, I'm not joking. It wasn't that bad. But his wife was there. She was nervous, too, Monique. Uh, But Chris is so good underwater. He's so calm with these animals. He has so much experience that I was fairly confident he'd be able to find a way to get back to the surface uh, and re-hook up to our rope that we used to pull him up. Mm. And he eventually did. But there were some really tense moments because I knew the shark activity was really intense and Fred was leading a, 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 the charge. And it wasn't just Fred, but there was a pack of probably five or six really big animals that were really interested in wasp for some reason. Maybe because I painted it yellow and black. Yeah, the
0: yellow might have something to do with it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, uh, they, uh, they kept testing it over and over again. Luckily, it held up to their uh, barrage. The unfortunate thing is, you know, Chris got knocked over a lot of times, but all the cameras got ripped off. Mm. So uh, we missed a lot of the probably really, really good shots. Uh, we had some great stuff, don't get me wrong, but we I wish I could dive back down and find those GoPros that got ripped off and are sitting in the bottom of the
0: ocean in New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, you say that, you know, that they were very curious about that cage and To me, it looks fairly obvious why. I mean, yeah, you've painted it yellow. It's it's highly visible. Yum, yum, yellow and all that stuff. Um, But also, Chris is down there as a a little one-man cage. It's something they haven't seen before. You're on the bottom. You're in their domain. You're no longer on the surface where they're probably a little accustomed to seeing fishermen or cages or something else. And so you guys went out looking for Fred again in New Zealand, and you took another different type of benthic cage. I think you called it the Black Widow. Um, similar kind of concept, but tell me about that.
2: Well, always when you're working with white sharks on the bottom of the ocean in New Zealand, you're in uncharted territory. Uh, this is stuff that people haven't done before. Chris had one day to practice with the black widow. Uh, the idea is to give him mobility rather than just dropping a cage down like they do in, in Australia on the bomb and other places. This is a, a small cage designed to, to give Chris, uh, the mobility where he can get in different positions. Uh, to get better backdrops for photography and to get closer to sharks, uh, sometimes you get sharks that will come close. Sometimes they're very shy, skittish, and he he can actually go to the sharks mm. in the black widow. Um, but it's always uncharted territory when you're when you're working with these animals on the bottom of the ocean. Uh, you really have to trust that your divers that they know what they're doing, and we always have safety plans in place. But it's really a, it's a scary time every time. Chris comes back up from one of those dives. I breathe a sigh of relief that, that everything went okay. And we, you know, we have issues down there, but um, luckily with these one man cages, uh, we had a really solid crew and uh, I felt, you know, fairly comfortable that he could pull this off.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the Black Widow looked highly mobile. I mean, there's a, there's a great scene of, of Dickie walking out with it out from the water and I'm like, Oh, that's actually pretty smart. looks like pretty mobile. Um, but you also, I'm just curious from a production level, you had a shooter down there and it looked like he was just in a straight benthic cage. Was he able to move that around as well?
2: I uh, th- he was actually stuck in one spot. So Chris kind of had yeah. to work, you know, around him, which, which made it difficult. But, you know, there were points, we had so many sharks coming in at once. I think uh, what we have like six or seven, Chris
1: Yeah, uh, at sharks least. coming at one, in at once. At one time there were far more than I could actually count, you know, that were in front of me. And um, it, it was, it was incredible, you know, as as Jeff says, when you get down to the bottom, um, it's, it's a completely different world down there. The sharks behave differently. and Jeff and I have got a great relationship you know, over the last 25 years. He, he sends me down to the bottom to try to kill me, I try to survive, and then we come up and have a beer afterwards. And um, you know, it's, it's just a, a, a fantastic relationship we've had over the years. And I think one of the greatest strengths is that we've always worked with virtually the same team and we all trust each other. You know, we, we kind of a, a band of brothers that work on these shoots. And I know if something actually does happen in the highly unlikely event that somebody's always got my back. And we we try and always work with very experienced people wherever we go. But, you know, when you're working on the bottom of the ocean with a great white shark, it it is an unknown. Very few people interact with them on the seafloor. And when you're down there, you know, there's a lot going on. There's current, there's a lot of water movement, there's swell. When I'm walking on the bottom, there's a lot of seaweed and there are a lot of uneven rocks, so you're constantly trying to find your footing. And you know, when you've got a lot of current, it's also not easy. You're getting pushed over as well. So when you've got another cameraman and you're trying to work around him, that's another variable you're trying to control. And occasionally things go wrong. You know, in this particular shoot, the boat got caught in a little bit of wind and the boat started drifting off, pulling that, pulling the main cage, and being completely untethered, you know, suddenly I'm running on the seafloor like Fred Flintstone trying to keep up there with my little shell on top of me. And, you know, I had to walk about 100 yards or about 80 yards underwater over that uneven ground and with a little bit of air left trying to hook up. So, you know, you can never plan for moments like that. And it's, it's often not the sharks that give you the biggest headaches. It's environmental conditions or technical conditions. But we always have safety as a of paramount importance, so we've generally always got comms to the surface. But the guys I work with are fantastic. You know, Andy many times, and Dave in New Zealand of late, and they're very experienced divers. So you know, I always know I've got I've got cover under the water, and I always know Jeff's looking out for me on the surface. So I'm never worried down there. I love going down there. I'm more comfortable with the sharks than anything else.
0: So Chris, you're down in the Black Widow, and you're getting mobbed by a half a dozen smaller sharks, were they, were they curious about what you were or do you feel that they were a bit sort of energized or charged looking for feeding opportunity?
1: Well, you know, I think they were more curious than anything else. But what generally happens is they take a little, a little bit of time to build up their confidence. And once they build up their confidence, that's when they really start, you know, coming closer and pushing the advantage home. And that's what happened once again. You know, it just takes one animal to start getting a little bit excited And I don't want to say there's a frenzy because there never is a frenzy with great white sharks, but they do build up a degree of confidence, you know, just like a a pack of hyenas or a pack of wild dogs. You know, they become more comfortable when others of their kind are more comfortable. And and that's what happened. You know, they come in, check us out. We are a foreign object in their world. Mm. So for them, the only way to get to know what we are is to actually come down there and and mouth the structure or give us a gentle push and see how we react. And, you know, that's what happened a couple of times. But, um, you know, I know great whites are not about trying to eat us. It's just a, a foreign thing in their world. So they want to investigate us, they want to see what we are. And I tell you what, when you have an, a great white shark investigate you at close quarters, it's just the most incredibly humbling experience. You know, to be in that animal's world, to be in a super predator's world, is just truly unique, and i 'm um, always privileged and in feeling incredibly grateful
0: and it is a bit of a drug isn 't it it's, absolutely it 's fun
1: it's fun, <laughs> it's fun. As, as much as I try and cloak it in this uh, disguise of always trying to learn new things or take you know, you know new great images or get great footage for the shows, I would be lying if I said i didn 't do it for a big part of the thrill it 's just such an amazing experience it's You know, it's it's an addiction to get close to these animals and um, you can't get a greater high than than that with with which you get from being close to predators.
0: Yeah, 100% agree on that. Uh, So, Jeff, you're down there in New Zealand. Obviously, you're scoring some really good shark action, but you're specifically looking for one shark. How good was the intel that you had on figuring out that Fred might actually be in the area? Well, what's interesting is I actually have a long
2: history with Fred that goes back before Chris even went down to New Zealand. The year before we filmed Air Jaws, Fins of Fury with Chris in the Wasp on the bottom of the ocean, we had done a cage dive in the exact same spot and Fred arrived and he bit the cage, bit the float that held up the cage and almost sunk the cage. And I remember seeing the first couple of shots that Andy Casagrande had taken of Fred and this was the biggest male shark I'd ever seen. He was humongous. And he had shook that cage. The diver inside it was his first shark dive, first white shark dive, and he had a, an 18 foot almost great white shaking his cage. And he popped up and he said, Is this normal? Is this how it always works? <laughs> but uh, that was an incredible, uh, unforgettable encounter with Fred. And he was just a special shark. And I thought it was really unusual that we went back the next year with Chris. And he put the wasp on the bob and who shows up but Fred again. Mm. So Fred was obviously a local there in New Zealand, uh, and sharks have a tendency to, to do that. They have site fidelity. They often return to the same places uh, year after year after year, sometimes on a one-year cycle, two-year cycle. So uh, we, had, and we had knowledge that uh, Fred had been there even prior to that in, in previous years. We found a book uh, that had some old shark photos, and we, we found Fred in the book. Hmm. So he was a very well-known shark in that particular area in New Zealand. So I had seen him before Chris went down. Chris went
0: down and encountered him. And of course,
2: you know, he just keeps coming back to this area. So he must like
0: something in that area. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that area. What do you think makes that particular region in New Zealand so special? Like, you guys noted that there's a lot of large males there, which is, you know, relatively uncommon in a lot of the hotspots. So what brings them to that area?
2: Well, you know, there's not a lot of uh, seals gathered together in a big uh, uh, colony like you see in other places, like in Seal Island, South Africa, and Seal Rock in South Africa. There's 20,000, 30,000 seals. Uh, here the seals are spread out over uh, several islands, and I don't think we've ever seen a white shark uh, attacking and eating a seal there. So you wonder what they're there doing there, Um Probably eating fish. Chris can talk more about that. But I also have a theory that uh, this was a big whaling center uh, 50, 60 years ago. And I think it was very attractive to white sharks back then. There's a long history of white sharks coming into this area. And I think they may have just developed a, a pattern of going there based on this previous whaling industry. And they just keep coming back. Now, I don't know what keeps them there. I'm not sure anybody knows. But there, this one particular spot, Edwards Island, Uh, which is off of Stewart Island is uh, extremely attractive to the sharks for some reason.
0: Yeah. I that's that's an interesting theory. Um, There are sites that we've got right now that we're seeing the loss of, you know, some of the food sources and then the scarcity of white sharks. So that pretty immediately um, occurs but that doesn't mean that that area isn't attractive somewhere in their memory, DNA, whatever else. Chris, what do you think they're actually doing there? Why that site fidelity of their primary food source may not be there?
1: Yeah, so so Luke, what we're finding more and more with white sharks is, you know, historically people always used to think seals and mammalian prey Mm -hmm. were the most important thing to them. But, you know, especially over the last 10 years, what we've really discovered is smaller shark species such as in in South Africa, you know, uh, sharks like smooth hound sharks and superman sharks, in Australia, gummy sharks. Um, And in New Zealand, what we saw down there around Edwards Island when I was on the bottom on quite a few occasions was that there were a lot of spiny dogfish there. And I know on the east coast of the US, you know, of Chatham, um, when the white sharks are not inshore there, they they go to areas where there are huge aggregations of those smaller sharks. Mm. So... More and more, we're realizing that when you manage great white shark populations, you cannot manage just a single species, i.e., just the great white. You have to look at the ecosystem that they actually come from. So, you know, all the components of it. And if you're going to have healthy great white shark populations, you have to have healthy populations of these smaller sharks. There's a, there's a great website, if you'll indulge me, called sharkfreechips.com that actually goes into all of this and you know, explains what happens to great white sharks when you take these smaller sharks out of the the food chain. And we're seeing that in South Africa more so than anywhere else. Sadly, we've got a bottom longlining here called demersal shark longlining that is removing all these smaller sharks from the inshore environment where the great whites were always, you know, the the dominant animal for these years. Mm And now they're just simply disappearing. The great whites with no inshore food source that they rely on for really seven, eight months of the year are looking elsewhere. It's kind of like your local grocery, grocery store no longer stocking milk or bread. What do you do? You go down the road and you go to the next one and, and you keep going until you find those those important food sources. So without these smaller sharks, you know, the great whites really are up against it. And I think at the Edwards Island, as Jeff alluded to, you know there are a lot of seals there, but you never see them feeding on these seals. And you know we've done a little bit of work there at night, and um, I think that one of the primary prey components there are these smaller sharks. Um, there are also, you know, other sharks like seven-gill sharks are around Edwards Island and um, the main island of Stewart Island. So I think they're very important to the great white sharks. And then As Jeff was saying, you know, with the historical whaling station, um, there's probably a component, a a memory component to the white sharks as well that they patrol those areas. But obviously they need to have food, and when they're in those areas, they're probably feeding on those smaller sharks.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks in part to Shark Week and even some of the films that you guys have made. We've seen behaviours from great whites that we didn't really, at least in the public opinion, think that they were capable of. You know, People used to think they'd go and pretty much just hit things on the surface, you know, humans, seals, whatever else. But we're seeing more and more their activity very deep and sort of mid-water column on the bottom. So when you're down there and you're watching these sharks, are you noticing kind of a more tendency for them to be hunting along the bottom where some of those smaller sharks might be?
1: You know what we're noticing more and more is just how comfortable they are foraging and feeding on the bottom. and. Hmm. You know, for all the years, obviously Seal Island False Bay is where I've specialized in, you know, for twenty five years or so, and over that time we saw more than ten and a half thousand predatory events and they're all on the surface. So naturally you think, well, this is where you know the white sharks are feeding. But once you've had the opportunity, like I've been lucky enough, you know, with Jeff over the years, to work on the bottom, you see how comfortable these sharks are on the bottom and Mm -hmm that's where they generally are a few feet off the bottom and only come up to the surface when they're actually seeing something up there. So most of their life is seemingly spent on the bottom, just off the bottom and then in that midwater column. Also remember that if they were on the surface all the time and they were hunting seals there, the seals would see them coming. So they also use the bottom as refuge to, to remain counter shaded, you know, to launch ambush attacks. And, um, You know, I think they forage on the bottom, and if there's an opportunity on the surface, they'll launch upwards. But they're very comfortable feeding on the bottom. You know, historically, in Australia, great whites got the name white pointer. And that was when they turned upside down to feed on whale carcasses, and you saw that big white Mm -hmm. underbelly. And the whalers used to think great whites would have to turn upside down to, to be able to feed. But we know now that these animals are actually very deft at picking up small things off the bottom, you know, just like we use our our hands and and we've got a lot of manoeuvrability of them. So great white sharks are able to pick up very small items off the bottom. And I've seen them, you know, where a small scrap of fish has landed on the bottom, and they very deftly pick that up. So, Mm. you know, I I think these are animals that are are capable of having a far more um, diverse diet than what was previously thought, and I think that just like us, you know, variety is the spice of life, and probably for the great whites too. You know, they need to have a variety of different components in their, in, in their diet, and certainly not just seals. Whose idea was it to head out in a little rubber dinghy looking for a 20 foot great white shark? Uh,
0: well, you know, uh, I'm all about getting the shot, whatever it takes to
2: get the shot, within reason. And uh, being down at water level with a white shark and inches away is just the best footage you can get. Uh, sometimes they 're intimidated by a big boat uh, i 've been in little tiny boats uh, with white sharks before. Uh, almost got flipped over once in New Zealand with uh, Andy Casagrandi, kind of a notorious scene where we're trying to put a, a fin cam on a white shark but uh it's just it gives you such a cool angle and it 's so um, just amazing and thrilling to get that close to these sharks you know to get inches away and get these close up shots that that everybody loves and you know, we know that um, they're not going to try to turn our boat over. They're not going to uh, attack the boat like a steam out of Jaws. They're they're going to be cautious. And these sharks, despite the fact that, uh, you know, they were bigger than the boat in many occasions, as you can see by some of the shots, uh, they really were very cautious with us. Uh, a little less cautious than with the big boat, which is good for us. But um, I feel very comfortable being that close to a great white shark.
0: Yeah. It certainly seemed like they are a little more comfortable coming in and checking out, you know, this smaller footprint that you guys are able to have. And, Chris, you're out there specifically to try to photograph the dorsal fins, right? Tell me about that ID and how that works.
1: Yeah, so, Luke, I think Jeff's uh, not telling the full story there. I think one of, Jeff's, <laughs> one of Jeff's favourite sayings is not we're going to need a, a bigger boat, it's we're going to need a smaller boat. So, yeah, we, we, we spend a lot of time in craft that's generally generally not probably thought of as being uh, large enough for working with these big animals. But, you know, it's exactly what Jeff said. There's there's no better way to get great footage and get down to the, the animals level. And as a wildlife photographer, whether I'm photographing great whites or I'm photographing lions, I always try and make eye contact with these animals because, you know, you, you really want to bring that animal into the viewer's world. And so... When we use those little boats, it allows me to get really close to animals, get great shots of of detail on them, and the dorsal fin is kind of like their fingerprint, you know. Um, Each great white has got a trailing edge that's generally got little nicks out of it or little cuts, and by photographing those dorsal fins, we can build up an identification database. Going back years, we can see, you know, which animals are still in the same area and use those fingerprints, essentially the dorsal fins, as a way of building up a population database of a specific area without necessarily having to tag them or catch them or in in any way, you know, do things that are slightly more invasive. So it's a great non-invasive tool for getting a population idea of a certain area and for me, you know, photographically, it, it really allows me to, to capture images that I think take us into the animal's world and take us to uh, put us in a situation where we're not looking down on them, but we on the same level and same understanding of them. Chris, you're actually in the water
0: with Fred. Uh, did you look bigger, scarier, more friendly than last time you saw him?
1: <laughs> more, more friendly. Um, <laughs> friendly? <laughs> yeah. You know you know you know what he 's just such a big shark that when you mm. when you see him come barreling in you you kind of you kind of don 't remember how big he was the last time, but you know exactly how big he is now mm. and he just is a is an incredibly large animal you know um, i 've been lucky to like Jeff work in all the locations around the world where you see these really big great whites and People always think there 's so many of them, and they 're actually incredibly few, truly huge great white sharks out there They're, you know a lot of people will shoot me down for saying this, but I, I reckon there're probably under a hundred great white sharks left in the waters of the world that are over five and a half meters or, or eighteen foot in length. so when you see them, they make such an impression on you and, and Fred is you know just this incredibly girthy shark and, Generally, the girls are a lot bigger than the males. So when you see a a guy of that size, you know, he's he's kind of dwarfs everything else. He's the Andre Andre the Giant of Sharks. You know, he's a a truly massive animal. And um, no matter how many times you see him, you you can't just be amazed that here is a great white shark that's 18 or foot longer in length. And, you know, he's an arms, arm's length away from it and wanting to push me over, I mean, sheepers. Mm. It's like standing in front in front of one of the great tuskers in, on an African plain and, you know, having one of those massive elephants push you around. It's it's a humbling, exhilarating, and just simply awesome experience.
0: Yeah, well you make a really good point about, you know, the size of great whites worldwide because they they have been hunted and, and culled down and, and those the big monsters take a long time to grow. So we've lost a lot of those out of the water. Um, but a lot of the ones that are around do tend to be female. So when you see a big male like that, is there an immediate uh, recognition that it's a male? Like is there a difference in behaviour patterns or do you notice that they respond differently?
1: No, not not really. Um, you know, a, a huge male and a huge female are essentially the same thing in terms of just how impressive they are. Um, but I, I guess what I'm getting at
0: is, uh, you know, females typically tend to have a little bit more uh, caution about them um, in sharks. You know, they've got a little bit more to protect. You know, they, they might be popping. They might have a number of other things that are going on, whereas the males tend to be a little bit more indiscriminate. So I'm wondering, with these big males, do you see that he's sort of mellowing out in his old age or is he still sort of, you know, punky?
1: Yeah, I think I think in in the case of Fred, he, he's still very much the, the guy who likes to have a a brawl in the, in the pub, so to speak. He's, um, he's an animal that's not, not scared to push his weight around. He's certainly not the old-timer sitting at the back of the pub smoking a cigar. He's the bouncer letting you into the pub and um, you know making sure that you, you do what he wants you to do, not what you want to do. So he's a, he's a very domineering animal. And, uh, you know, when the other male white sharks in the area, they quickly move out of his way. So the hierarchy that exists, under the water, he's clearly at the top of that that food chain. Yeah. Um, you, you do also see that with the girls, but generally, when we've been at Edwards Island, it's at that time of the year. It's usually just been male sharks, and undoubtedly, Fred kind of rules the roost there.
0: Well, it seems that that tone kind of carried over to you guys and your crew, um, Jeff. This film in particular, I, I watched it and I just I just kept laughing because. It struck a particular tone. You guys kind of had a very tongue-in-cheek, let's go and have a bit of fun with this kind of tone. Was that was that intentional? Did you go out to make something that was funny or did it just kind of happen along the way?
2: Yeah, I, I think uh, it's, it's really nice when you can uh, inject a little uh, humor into the shows and not take yourself so seriously. And I think it all started with Fred's name mm. uh, being P-H-R-E-D. And uh, you just start – on set when you're on the boat, you just start cracking jokes about, about that. And uh, I don't know. I mean, we're all good friends on these shoots and we, we like to have fun and uh, it's, it's just fun to get together. You know, we see each other once or twice a year and get together and go out and make these films and, and have been blessed and lucky to have incredible adventures. And somehow we have this like camaraderie and this luck that uh, we're able to pull these things off. And I don't know, people probably don't get how, Difficult it is to to go out and actually uh, interact with these animals and do it safely and actually come back with great stories and great footage and it, it's not easy to do it so it's almost a celebratory thing mm. when we are, we're able to succeed and uh, and find these animals and have great interactions so uh, we we keep it light we're not too serious uh, as long as the sharks are portrayed in a good fun way. And, and it helps people get to know these animals and, and fall in love with them. Because I've always said that Shark Week has, has made sharks the most popular animals in the world. And part of that is developing the personalities of these animals, as I've done over the years in my films. Like we've had Colossus, who is a very well-known shark in South Africa. Who Unfortunately, we haven't seen him for a few years. but uh, And there's Fred, and we've had other animals in Guadalupe Island, Mexico, that that people recognize and can identify with. And it's just a tried and true method of natural history filmmaking from when I was a kid watching, uh, you know, these, these shows growing up on TV where you would get to know, uh, you know, Leo the lion or something in a documentary and you could sort of identify with him and give him human qualities, uh, and personalities, which they do have some. So I think it's always good to have fun with the shows and, um, and it just
0: helps the audience enjoy the 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 animals uh, a little bit more. Yeah. Well, it definitely achieved that. And I wanted to ask you about, I believe this is your 30th anniversary of making Shark Week shows. Is that correct? Yeah, hard to believe.
2: 30, <laughs> 30 years. It goes by quick. But, it's right. you know, it's so fun. It's like uh, I think I always think it's done. This is my last year. I always tell the guys, this is it for me. I'm done. I, I'm getting too old for this stuff. And then uh, Discovery calls and goes, hey, can you do one more? Hmm. Like, ah. Okay, let's try one more. Chris, what do we got? What should we do? Um, mainly we followed the, uh, I've been really blessed and lucky to follow the Air Jaws series uh, through the years. And uh, we've been able to adapt and change that series around based on, on real-life events. And Chris touched on the fact that uh, where he's worked for so many years, Fall Space South Africa, uh, where Air Jaws was born, uh, those flying great white sharks that, that everybody loves. Uh, He's no longer there, you know, Hmm. uh, environments changed, things changed, the overfishing, the orcas came in and definitely made a dent in the population of white sharks there. So we follow that storyline and um, it's always interesting to see where it leads next. You know, now we've discovered new hunting grounds where the white sharks have moved to. Hmm. Uh, There was recently a viral video of uh, white sharks swimming under some surfers in a place called Plettenberg. I've seen it everywhere. We were there last year filming, and uh, it was one of the first times that sharks had been on television hunting seals in this area. So uh, it's just been a real uh, amazing journey for me to uh, to dig up these stories about sharks that that people didn't know, or and behaviors that people didn't understand. And uh, you know, I guess I'll keep going as long as we have interesting stories to tell.
0: I I guess I'm curious. After so many years of doing it, you mentioned that Shark Week made sharks the most popular animal in the world. I think you're probably pretty accurate there. Do you think though that this type of filmmaking and getting it out in the public like that is changing much when it comes down to conservation or you know, government protections and things like that?
2: I do think so. I think you know, Discovery's partnered with a lot of um, conservation organizations and pushing the message out there about sharks. And the, the important thing is if you forget about an animal, it gives uh, the people that exploit those animals a chance to really get a foothold mm. uh, in, in overfishing and things like that. But you know we're talking about sharks all the time. We're making them popular everywhere. Uh, even in China, they're becoming more popular. Where there's been a lot of you know uh, fishing for the fins, and that's been well documented. But I know Yao Ming has been behind. Uh, the, the basketball player has been behind. Stopping the practice of finning uh, even in those countries where it's ingrained in the culture to to uh, eat shark fin soup so Mm. Shark week has gone a long way in a lot of different fronts in just making these animals popular getting people talking about them um, And that eventually I think translates into legislation Mm. the politicians hear about it uh, Becomes a part of our culture. You can't kill the animals that are a part of our culture and so popular especially with kids it's always the most popular exhibit at the aquarium. So, you know, I'm happy with the role that Shark Week has had in, in, in really, you know, protecting sharks. Because if think about if there was no Shark Week and we went back to the, the 60s and the 50s when you could catch a big shark, hang it up on a dock, take a bunch of pictures with it. Think this is really cool we just saved lives because we pulled these sharks out of the ocean and we've made the ocean a safer place well you can't get away with that anymore yeah and a lot of that is is due to shark week
0: yeah 100 percent agree i mean it used to be the you know the sign of manlyhood or you know being a great fisherman or going out and having this great man versus beast adventure that you'd reel in this massive shark but now that guy gets absolutely decimated on you know the news and social media and stuff because people like actually that shark is something that we even know, we might even know that shark's name, like uh, some of the sharks we saw killed in Bahamas a couple years ago. You know, people were outraged by that because not only do people know those sharks, but they're a massive source of tourism dollars for the Bahamas and, you know, site recognition for, for everything that goes on with protecting natural environments in the parks in Bahamas. Uh, I wanted to ask both of you because you both of you have such a long, long history of natural history filmmaking, in particular with sharks. Um, for me, when I was a kid, I specifically remember being like five years old. And my dad was kind of a little bit nutty, but he wouldn't let me watch TV except if it was documentaries. And so I'd I'd watch Jacques Cousteau, because that was, you know, a guy with a bunch of his mates going on a boat and having these massive adventures. I was like, I want to be that guy. I want to go out and play on the ocean and learn about sharks and big animals and stuff like that. So what was that kind of Turning point, whether it be sharks or filmmaking. Uh, Jeff, what was that for you? Like, what made you get into this 30 years later? You know.
2: Well, it's funny because I grew up on the Jacques Cousteau documentaries as well, mm. and um, I always thought as a kid, God, if I could just do that, you know, somehow uh, for a living, somehow go to Africa maybe one day. And, and you know, now I'm, I go there every year practically. Mm. Uh, I, I, I don't know how I was able to pull it off. I, I think just sticking to it and, uh, and really wanting it so bad. But I was definitely influenced by those 1970s uh, Jacques Cousteau films and, and by the underwater world and uh, just lucky enough to, uh, just to make it happen and, and to keep it going for all these years. I never thought Shark Week would go over, over 30 years like this. It's one of the longest-running uh, series in, in television history. And it just shows how much people love these animals. And, uh, and I, you know, as far as conservation goes, I always have sort of a very subtle conservation message because I'm not, you know, my first job is not to be a conservationist, but I think what you can do is by showcasing the beauty of these sharks and and showing people how much we love these sharks and, and just amazing footage of sharks, uh, that creates, a, a a sort of a desire to want to save these animals. And that's the way that I approach it, is showcase these animals, show people how smart they are, how beautiful they are, how how much uh, they're an important part of our ecosystem, and then people will naturally want to save them.
0: Yeah. Uh, Chris, same question to you, man. You've been in this a long time. What got you started?
1: So, Luke, I I mean, I'm incredibly lucky. You know, I'm, I'm born in Africa. I live in Africa and I am African so you know coming from this incredible continent you've naturally or hopefully got a passion for for wildlife and from the earliest of ages I was very lucky I spent a huge amount of time in some of Africa's greatest game parks and I got huge exposure to predators and I from a very young age fell in love with them I just loved the way they moved I love the excitement of the chase. Funny, as much as I like predators, I don't like seeing things die, but it's all part of it. But um, when my folks moved down to the coast when I was uh, in my early teens to to Cape Town, you know, I heard stories of of great white sharks and, you know, we'd all watched the films like Jaws and and seen all the, the pictures and books from people like Ron and Valerie Taylor and Rodney Fox and, you know, films like Blue Water, White Death and, I wanted to, in those days, just get out there and see a great wild shark. And funny enough, the first one I ever saw, I was bodyboarding at a beach called Musenberg and I had one swim not far away from me, which wasn't the way you really wanted to see one. But I was fascinated. Here was an animal that could easily kill me, bite me in half and swallow me whole. And um, it didn't. Mm. It was just this incredible creature moving mysteriously below the, the sea surface. And so, uh, along with a colleague, we volunteered to work for uh, a group that had just started working with them in 1991 at Dyer Island, which was is another famous great white shark location. And um, all the time I was I was very curious to see, you know, what was going on in my own backyard at a place called Seal Island. And it was around about, I think, 91, 92 that the BBC had just done a documentary with Edinburgh. Uh, called Great White Shark, where they'd cast a, a surfboard off the rocks at the Farallon Islands, and a, a shark, a huge shark called Stumpy, came rocketing out and grabbed the surfboard. I well, yeah. I, I thought, well, why don't I try towing a, a life jacket or something behind my little rubber inflatable, which was only about 10 foot long. It was all we could afford as kids, as a tiny little rubber duck. And I went out to Seal Island in False Bay and we towed this thing behind our boat, not expecting to see anything. And lo and behold, a great white shark came flying out the water. And instantly, and you know, I thought, well, was that a fluke or, you know, have I stumbled onto something here? And we picked up the life jacket because this tiny great white spat it out, put it out and five minutes later, a real great white shark, you know, one that the only time in my life I can actually say was far bigger than the boat, came flying out the water and instantly realised we'd stumbled onto something truly incredible, not only great white sharks but flying great white sharks and and that was kind of the beginning of Air Jaws and where it was all born and, you know, for for more than two and a half decades after that, I had the privilege of, of working with these incredible animals with our company Apex and, you know, that Jeff and I became friends in 1999 already. And, you know, this, this amazing relationship of having friendship but also putting together amazing documentaries and most importantly bringing them into people's living rooms and showing them these incredible animals and hopefully instilling in them a, a feeling of not only awe and wonder but also to try and conserve them. You know, I'd like nothing more. That for future generations, for them to have these incredible experiences that Jeff and myself and the rest of our team have had, and yeah, so it's been a it's been a long progression, but animals have always been in my blood, and you know, hopefully through through Jeff's incredible documentaries and and my photos, we'll make sure that they're there for people to appreciate in years to come.
0: Well, you've certainly accomplished that goal, um, Jeff. The podcast listeners would be pretty annoyed with me if I didn't ask you what advice you'd have for the young filmmaker these days, you know, should they go and grab a tinny and start dragging around life jackets or, um, <laughs> what, what would be the move for them? Cause the world's changed so much these days. And I, I, people ask me regularly, like, what should I do? So what's your advice?
2: Well, there's a lot more opportunities nowadays for people that want to work with sharks than there was when I was coming up because, mm. you know, shark ecotourism has gotten so big everywhere. Um, you know, I would try to probably go actually experience these sharks up close and personal, like with, uh, my friends down in South Africa at, uh, uh, Marine Dynamics where they offer internships for people. They can go down and work with the sharks. Uh, they've had a shortage of great whites too, but you know, we're all hopeful they'll come back there someday. But, uh, you know, I would try to go out and get involved with sharks, uh, take a big gamble, roll the dice, go somewhere where you've never been before, uh, learn to dive and, you know, maybe the Red Sea, or there's lots of, lots of more options than there was, uh, when I was a kid, you know, coming up and sharks were such a foreign, uh, sort of exotic thing. I'll never see one. I didn't think, but, uh, you know, now there's a lot of opportunities for people to actually interact with these animals, you know, worldwide. Um, I should also mention that, um, you know, Chris and I, we've had a lot of adventures doing air jobs for the past 20 years and, We've had the, the fortune to be able to uh, make a show this year for Shark Week called Air Jaws 2020, which looks back at all of the amazing scenes that we've been able to capture uh, in, in filming Air Jaws. It has some uh, hilarious stories behind the scenes kind of things that you never saw before. Uh, there was an incident where we had Dickie on a, a little craft called Parthenope. It was a little shark cut out and he was out mm-hmm. there looking for Colossus. Everybody knows that scene. Well, what you probably didn't know is, is Parthenope, the thing he was riding on broke loose from the boat. (laughs) And, uh, Chris had to go rescue him a couple hundred meters away from the boat. The sharks were all chasing him. All turned out good, thankfully. But, um, there's a lot of really cool, interesting stories in this. And if you're an Air Jaws fan, you absolutely have to also watch, in addition to Legend of Fred, you got to watch Air Jaws 2020, which just celebrates this series. And, uh, You know, there's never going to be anything else like it uh, in terms of a Shark Week series because we just got so lucky to stumble across these animals and uh, people want to see more and more of it and, um, you know, been been able to do it for 20 years. That's Mm. in this business. That's really
0: incredible. Yeah, we'll definitely have to check that out. Uh, My last question on Legend of Fred is how did you get Reese Darby involved? That guy's a legend. It was super funny. (laughs) Uh, that
2: wasn't me, actually. That was uh, Mike Sorensen, the uh, executive producer. Who that makes sense. Him. Yeah, but he is a hilarious guy. I laughed so hard. I watched all the outtakes. And uh, I just he looks like a guy who you'd find at Stewart Island, don't you think, Chris?
1: Absolutely. I thought he was from Stewart Island. I thought he was in one of those crazy little boat sheds that we found there where we found Dickie tapping away. At first, uh, I thought, who is this guy? And then suddenly I realized it was him.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was really funny. When I saw that, I'm like, oh, okay, we're in for it on this show. It's going to be good. <laughs> well, guys, hey, I-, I wanted to thank you for your time today, but also for your contribution over so many years to Shark Week. You've made so many meaningful films that have inspired a lot of people, myself included, and I don't know if people say thank you a lot. So cheers for that, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks so
1: much. Pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. and. Thanks for everybody who watches these shows. And most importantly, you know, the Sharks really appreciate you watching them. And hopefully in years to come, they'll be around there for everyone to enjoy. Well, cheers, guys. Uh, to everyone listening and at home,
0: check out Jaws Awakens, the legend of Fred. It's a really good watch. And uh, that was the Daily Bite. Happy Shark Week. And if you'd like to continue hearing from the top shark experts in the world, tune in to the rest of the Daily Bite podcast. Thanks for listening.